we might not be as fast as those guys racing in the Tour de France, cyclists like you and me are always trying to boost our performance and aid our recovery. And that's where today's sponsor, MitoQ, comes in. Like everything else in our bodies, our mitochondria become less efficient as we age. From the age of 30 on, levels of a CoQ10 in the mitochondria can decline by 10% with each passing decade. This means that our body's natural resilience also declines, which can impact our training, our recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, stress, hormones, and even brain power. And this is why a new supplement called MitoQ is becoming so popular with endurance athletes. It helps the body better deal with intense training periods and then recover faster. Some athletes have even said they've improved their VO2 max, heart rate variability, and lactate thresholds. When you combine that with not needing as long to recover and being able to maintain more intense training cycles, you can see why MitoQ might help you achieve your performance gains. To learn more about the unique formula of MitoQ, to read some independent clinical trials and read some independent athlete testimonials, go to mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling. That's www.mitoq.com slash power up cycling. Thanks to MitoQ for sponsoring this episode of the Velonews Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Okay, welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a heart-thumping, sweat-pouring Friday afternoon here at the home offices. I say it's heart-thumping and sweat-pouring because I just watched Stage 13 with a big GC battle up to Puy-Marie. It was a thrilling piece of bike racing. That came after uh, Tirreno Adriatico had a thrilling day of bike racing, and that came after the Giro Rosa opened with a thrilling day of bike racing. I have to say that today... Uh, Friday, September 11th might just be the most uh, thrilling day of bike racing we've had all year because we're just having bike racing coming to us left and right. Hey, we have a great podcast coming up today. I am linking up with Jens Vogt again to break down all the GC action and the big storylines from the Tour de France. Second half of the show, James Start and Andrew Hood are filing their dispatch on the ground at Puy Marie talking about the GC battle and um, some of the fallout after the uh, testing for COVID-19 and some of the other storylines that are going on, namely this potential Colombian versus Slovenian um, national uh, alliance thing going on. We're also going to have um, a dispatch from Ben King, American rider, not in the Tour de France. He's ridden many Tours de France, and he's talking about, oh, some of the difficulties in training and staying on top form caused by the break in racing so really good to hear from ben but let's get to it the man the myth the legend uh the german himself jens Vogt, coming to us from a parking lot somewhere in uh, germany about to go see a movie first of all before we get to the gc battle jens what what movie are you gonna go see um there's not too many movies on in germany because the big movies they are holding back until basically they can fill up the movie theaters uh, we still have corona or COVID 19 restrictions so I believe only second or every third seat is sold. We're going to watch Tenet. Very cool. It's on my list. I was like, boy, if you know, if the, the movie theaters aren't working, maybe they're showing like old cartoons or like old Disney movies or something like that. But, you know, we all got to get outside and get our entertainment somehow. So yet speaking of entertainment, the stage 13 battle up Poimarie was extremely entertaining. Very steep climb. We saw a big GC battle again. 
The gloves came off with Primoz Roglic and Tade Pogacar attacking up the road. Egan Bernal was not able to follow. He took a tumble in GC, whereas behind, French hopes were dashed with Roman Bardet and Guillaume Martin falling out of podium contention. And it was just like a washing machine of action. You know, when we talk about the biggest storyline around this year's race, Jumbo Visma versus Ineos Grenadiers, Bernal versus Roglic. What's your takeaway from that battle, from what we saw today? I actually was impressed, and I actually did call it in my commentary, when Team Ineos went to the front, and quickly you could see that the gap is not getting smaller, which means they put the whole Team Ineos on the front, and the individual rider out there, Maximilian Schachmann, who has been out there for more than 100 kilometers, or in your words, like let's say he was out there for 80 miles, and they still couldn't bring back time to a single rider. It means they were not riding fast. It was all smoke and mirrors. It was all just a cover-up operation. They absolutely clever and cold-blooded bluffed everybody else, pretending they feel good and want to attack. But that was just the whistling of a scared child in the dark forest. But everybody fought for it. Everybody went, oh, that's a big team in Eos. We're not going to attack. So they kept the race fairly neutral and steady before the other teams realized, you know what? They are just done. They are just beep. You know, the word that starts with an F and ends on ED. So they are just beep. And by the team, by the time teams realized it was too late, they couldn't, they could not put much more time into Bernard. If Pogacar would have attacked two miles down the road, he probably could have put a minute 30 into Bernard. And I actually do see Bernal struggling to hold on to a podium. There are still Quintana chasing. There are still Rigoberto Uran. Both of them look a little better than Bernal. I mean, the look on Bernal's face, I haven't seen him like that in the last three or three years. He never suffered that much. And I don't see a miracle comeback in the Alps. So I think Bernal's focus should not be the yellow jersey. His focus should be, how can I hang on to a podium place at least? without the team behind me to back me up. Yeah, I'm with you. Some curious tactics by Ineos today. They had Sivakov attack into the day's breakaway, and then they pulled him back. And yeah, it was on the penultimate climb, not the big push to Puy-Marie, but the Col de Laron or Naron, which came right beforehand. They get the whole team on the front. They go really hard. They drop Guillaume Martin and Roman Bardet, but poof, that effort explodes the team. Kostrovieko gone, Sivakov gone. All that's left is Richard Carapaz. Richard Carapaz puts on a little attack up to Poimarie, and Jumbo Visma closed it down so easily. And Tom Dumoulin rode up next to Richard Carapaz and gave him a look like, hey, man, you know, we still got like uh, 10K left in this climb. You sure you want to go that uh, that hard this soon? It really seemed like, like you said, it was like the team trying to pull out all of its bag of tricks to do something. But all this cute play wasn't able to overcome the fact that, yeah, I mean, Roglic and Jumbo Visma are just so much stronger than Bernal and Ineos. Um, one thing that really that blew me away is so Pogacar attacks and Roglic goes with him. Roglic just seems to have this beautiful pedaling style, high cadence, really mastermind pedaling style. You know, Pogacar is up to pushing a bigger gear and he's really going after it, but but or Pogacar is pushing the bigger gear. Roglic just has this high, high, high cadence. I, I'm curious, what did you make of the two Slovenians attacking and, uh, and, and going for the win? Pogacar 
is young and hungry. He wants it, and he is forced to attack. Now he's second overall. Is he happy with that and wants to secure his second place, or is he actually going for the big one? Is he actually trying to win this year's tour? Roglic, he was strong already for more than a month by now. He won a total lane in very convincing style. He was about to win the Dauphiné as well, then he crashed out. So now he's about six weeks in top shape. Did he peak too early? Can he hold this for another 10 days or another eight days in the tour? Or is Pogacar, who is obviously getting stronger day by day, is Pogacar going to take it in the end because Roglic maybe peaked one or two weeks too early and maybe cannot hold it? He definitely got a better team. Roglic got a better team. He got the experience of uh, how it has to be done. Um, but Pogacar is the challenger and he seemed to be at least at the same level like Roglic. And you, I agree, Roglic got a nice pedal style. Like, you know, we always do like this. You know, he's just, you know, spinning the legs. And that's always a good sign. That means he's still fresh and able to do it. Your body functions more efficient at the cadence at about 100 to 102, 103 reps per minute. As long as you can produce that, that means you're still fresh, right? And um, so that's a good sign. It will be a big battle between them two. But since they speak the same language, they can actually talk to each other without any of us understanding a word. So who knows what their plan is together, right? I'm not sure if the Colombians talk a lot together. I, they go, hey, listen, my friend, amigo, I'm in another team than you. No, we cannot work together because I am with education first and I am with uh, Team Ineos. No, we cannot be friends here in this race. Yeah, it's interesting. Andrew Hood did some reporting around that and said that, you know, these talks of a potential Colombian alliance, one of the hurdles there is that actually these Colombians have raced against each other so much that they already have sort of splits between them and they remember that time when Quintana didn't pull through and they already have, they kind of already have distance placed between them by previous races, whereas Roglic and Pogacar, they're the only real two Slovenians right now at the front of the race, so perhaps they have a better uh, relationship than uh, than the Colombian guys. You know, I keep coming back to Pogacar. He's only 21 years old. Um, he's obviously strong, but it's like the mentality that he has is this throw caution to the wind and attack mentality. Look, obviously that's helped out by the fact that he's very strong. I'm curious though, do you think that his age at all plays into that? Being so young, having only been in the world tour for a couple seasons now, do you think that being being young and not having, you know, so much experience at that level it impacts his decision to just kind of go for it? Well, you know, now that you say that, you know, it reminds me on a young Mike Tyson. No, I'm not going 12 rounds. I'm going in and I want to finish this as soon as I can in my turns. He is like a young Michael Jordan, you know, just coming in and going, here I am and I want my spot in the, you know, on the center stage. He is not willing to wait for the old king to go. He goes, no king, I want your throne right now, today, now. And it's awesome to see because it moves the race, puts fear in everybody else's heart. And it's just spectacular to watch from us, right? Um... I wish he would have a little bit of a stronger team with him or a team only for him. He lost two important guys, you know, with Fabio Aru and Davide Formolo, two potential helpers in the mountains. Now he's left with Christoph, a sprinter, and some people he could help, Alexander Christoph. So he got a good team for the flat stages, for the intermediate stages. 
But in the high mountains, he's pretty much isolated. Um, so that might play a role later when then he will have to be a little more defensive in his tactics because there's no one there to help him out. But in the end of the day, he can just sit with Roglic and follow his wheel. And at least he become a comfortable second behind Roglic. Yeah, I like that mentality of I want to win now. I I know I'm young. But I want to win now because I feel like so often in sports when there is a young athlete who comes up with a ton of talent, some of the mentality around that person is like, oh, well, you're going to be around for 10 or 15 years. So you're going to get all these opportunities to win. And I've seen it so many times in cycling and triathlon and American football where it's actually like the best season that that guy ends up having is his first or set his breakout. You know, I mean, we we saw that with TJ Van Garder and where it was like. His best two tours de France were right at the beginning of his career. And I remember people saying, well, oh, you know, he's so young. He's going to have all these opportunities for go to go for the podium in the future. But you never know in this sport. So I'm with you. It's like you have the conch right now. You're you got to go for it. Um, yes. Thrilling GC battle. You know, while I got you here, I want us to go back in time two stages into that sprint finish in Poitiers, which produced uh, one of the bigger controversial moments of this year's Tour de France. Peter Sagan sprinting for the win um, appears to elbow or nudge Wout van Aert in the final push to the line, and he is relegated, loses a bunch of points in the green jersey battle. And now the green jersey, the fight for the green jersey is actually very, very difficult for him to take it back from Sam Bennett. You know, you've probably watched the clip of the sprint a million times. Where are you at with it? Do you think the UCI race jury made the right decision? Yes, they did. Um, saying that, I love Peter Sagan to pieces. I would go that far to say, if I ever grow up, I want to be like Peter Sagan. Honestly, the guy is my absolute hero. And never ever in my entire career or afterwards, I saw him leaving his line or doing something like that. You could see pure desperation and frustration coming out there. He's trying to chase the stage when he's trying to chase the green jersey and just always a little short. He's just purely frustrated, just like a short circuit reaction by him. I'm sure he knows that and I'm sure he regrets that. And don't forget, there's probably 20, 30, 50 million people watching that in slow motion. And be trying to teach your children, hey, don't do this and this. They had no choice. The jury had to go and give him a sanction. What kind of sanction? I don't know, but he couldn't let it slip. The same for the finger of uh, Wout van Aert. Of course, he's frustrated. But no, you can just not show the finger in public where there's cameras and slow motion everywhere. So they had to go after that. And yes, the green jersey is a long, long way, maybe too long for the Peter Sagan of 2020. I went back and forth on it. At first, I was like, oh, God, you absolutely have to throw him out because he obviously deviated from his line. Then the overhead shot showed that perhaps he nudged into Wout van Aert because he was trying to get out of the way of a fan with a selfie stick and maybe the barriers bunched up. But the fact is that even if you account for that, you can't erase the fact that Wout van Aert was going straight and it was Peter Sagan who moved his line. And so technically, if we are to read the rules as they are written, which is sprinters shouldn't deviate from their line. Yes, he did indeed, indeed deviate from his line. But I'm with you. I mean, it speaks to this much wider storyline of Peter Sagan. He's just not the same Peter Sagan this year. And Wout van Aert 
is the new Peter Sagan. And so it, it really does seem like this act of desperation or frustration of like throwing your elbow into the ribs, of the guy who's kind of taken over your spot as the most exciting racer in the Tour de France this year. So I, I think you could read it. You know, it's very easy to read that storyline into it. I saw another brother, other people saying, well, you know, he just didn't want to crash. If he would have kept going, he would have, he would have caused this crash. But the wider thing is there, and we've heard this from a number of sprinters over the years, which is when you lose like a tiny percentage of your speed as a sprinter, just monumentals of a, increments of 1%, you start taking more chances and you start getting desperate. And that's where things go wrong. You know, it's like, it's great when you're on top of the world, but if you lose just a little bit, then it's like, you have to shoot that sketchy gap. You have to try up your, your strategies and and go and and that's when crashes and relegations and bad stuff happens. So and also in, in this case with Peter, it would not be illegal to just use the brakes. You got two of them on your bike, and just touch them a little. Your wheel gets out of. There was not enough space in the first place between the barriers and Vaux. There was just not enough space really to pass through there in a safe way. So sometimes you gotta go. Okay, I gotta go. I gotta do this move. Get disqualified, or I finish maybe only four. And Peter went full risk, I either win or I get disqualified. All right, so Jens, yesterday on Thursday, the stage finished up in a little town called Saran, uh, right on the corner of the Massif Central. This this town obviously has um, historical significance for you because it was 2001 when a young German rider, Jens Vogt, riding for Credit Agricole, won a stage into Saran. Tell us the story of your first Tour de France stage win into Saran. 2001, and Saran is one of the smallest state cities in history. 300 people only living there. We had a bigger group, long day through the Massif Central, up and down all day long. About 10 or 12 guys at the start. We destroyed all of them. In the end, just Bradley McGee and me left, and he was just totally out of power in the end. So about 5K to go. I knew I'm going to win because he was just so tired. It was fantastic. I had all the time in the world to celebrate to be happy, to smile. And hey, back in the days, total badass, no helmets. <laughs> we were only two in the break. I started the day with a helmet, of course. But once I'm in the break, in the end with two riders, the chances to crash are very small. So I put the head, take the helmet off. So one of the few images of me without a helmet. And yep, that was a great day. Changed my career to be better. And yeah, it was just all in all. It was just an awesome day I had. And here you are speaking on a podcast to me from across the world. What, ha- oh, what what went wrong, Jens? What went wrong? <laughs> I got older. I retired. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> well, thanks so much to Jens for chiming in on this uh, podcast. Again, Jens, uh, Jens' segment is brought to us by Trek Bikes with the Go By Bike campaign, <laughs> challenging anyone to replace one car ride with a bike ride. Post about it online. Hashtag Go By Bike. You can read more at trekbikes.com slash go by bike. Auf Wiedersehen, Jens. Auf Wiedersehen. See you soon. Thank you. You heard me talk about MitoQ at the top of the show. Many of us have heard of supplementing our training with the antioxidant CoQ10 for energy and recovery. MitoQ is a unique form of CoQ10 engineered to get inside the mitochondria in our cells to help create cellular energy and neutralize free radicals. MitoQ helps improve recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, and stress, all of which will help you train better and be healthier. To learn more about the unique formula, to read some independent clinical trials, and read some athlete testimonials, go to www.mitoq.com 
forward slash power up cycling. Again, www.mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling. Okay, back to the podcast. Yeah, this season has been unlike anything that any of us have ever experienced, apart from maybe guys who are coming back from a long injury. But then those guys were also, you know, they had forced recovery at the beginning of that period. And obviously how they return to racing is taken a bit with a grain of salt. And they have usually time to kind of work their way back into race shape. Um, And there's a little bit more flexibility with the program that they can be offered. But this year has been a long break, um, a long time of uncertainty for, for teams and riders and even when the season would restart was um, a big question for such a long time that everyone kind of handled it a bit differently. Basically, when once the race is starting started, I mean, my team, for example, has 150 race days packed into 105 days. So there's not a lot of time to re- reset. If you're in a period of good form in the winter and a normal season, then you can take advantage of that and take a break and then, you know, rebuild for the second half of the season, hit your second peak. Or if you're struggling in the winter, then you can, you can kind of evaluate where you are and what you need to do and then try to make something of the second half of the season. Uh, but this season is you are where you are coming out of the, the lockdown and there's not a lot of space to, make any really big differences um that said i mean all the riders on all the teams want to race a lot so um you know i've still had even even a week or two weeks sometimes is enough to make a difference like i started in poland and then went straight into some italian one day classics and was kind of on the back foot especially after crashing in the last day of poland and it was just sort of a downward spiral, but had um, about two weeks to reset and then raced Mattioti and Pantani and was already seeing a, a big improvement. So um, I think that especially in cycling, part of what's required of the athletes is adaptability. Um whether that's in, you know, kind of a macro way when you're looking at a whole season or a, or a long period of time during a season um, or in a micro way, even in, in races when, um, you know, the race or another team throws something at you that was totally unexpected and you just have to adapt to it um, and try to make the most of it. You know, the first big um, one day race you did of the season was in Lombardia and you've raced that race before. I mean, how, what were the biggest differences that you noticed in Lombardia within the Peloton itself than you would have seen in a typical year? Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I think Poland was probably a better example of kind of the way that the start of the season has trended. Um, it was the first race back for a lot of guys, the world tour race. There's a lot on the line and, Riders took all the risks. Um, you know, we haven't been in a peloton since, um, you know, February or March. And 
it felt like everything was was on the line um for every every inch of the course and it's you know the course in Poland is one where you have to fight for position because the roads are very narrow and if you're not aggressive then you're out of the race no matter how strong you are so there were a lot of crashes um some and also some really incredible performances um a lot of riders were on amazing form um you know other guys were suffering like i said every team kind of handled the the lockdown differently and some teams came out swinging um how long that last lasts remains to be seen um you know even in a tour you can kind of see it now that we're um nearly into the third week and the big mountains are starting this is when like the wheels just start to fall off um so guys who who are peaking at the beginning of this um you know new race season um there's not really time for a break so they're gonna just keep rolling it until the wheels fall off and um now you're seeing that even with some GC contenders today, Gil Martin lost time and Bardet and you're having guys, you know, complete reshuffling of the top 10. And you usually see that in Grand Tours in the third week. Um, but I think it's potentially exaggerated this year because, um, because guys are more fresh than usual. Um, I saw an interview with Bernal after today's stage and he was saying that he was doing close to his, you know, his best numbers ever. Um, and the rest were just better. So, um, you know, how is he supposed to respond to that? Um, but it, the race is far from over. And so we'll see, you know, we'll see the depth that he has compared to the others. And if the, you know, if the competition can continue to throw down that kind of power, um, for another week in high mountains. Yeah. I'm curious as you've been watching the tour de France, if there are, performances or just elements of the race thus far in the first half that you've seen that you really feel like are an expression of the stoppage and restartage of, or basically an expression of the strange season we've had so far? Not necessarily. I mean, I think if you talk to each individual, um, you'd have 170 different stories of how the lockdown affected guys, um, and their preparation, um, heading into the tour but i think the tour is always nervous so when i talk about a lot of crashes in poland um even in in lombardia for example that race is usually at the end of the season and usually there are you know fewer guys who are dropped who are willing to suffer for another three hours to to get their you know their name and their results um but because it's at the beginning of a season rather than at the end of the season, um, with riders carrying a lot of fatigue, um, guys really fought, um, all the way to the finish. Um, and that's just a, an indicator of the, the freshness and enthusiasm, but the tour is always nervous. Um, and it always, there's always a lot on the line at the tour. Um, each team sent, their best eight riders um 
So I think the the depth is there. The level's obviously quite high. I mean, we're seeing uh, records being broken, um, which could be related to, to freshness, um, you know, more time spent at altitude doing specific training, you know, maybe more riders have been able to prepare the way that, um, you know, the GC leaders um, did in the past where you saw like the Froome Wiggins guys um, over the last 10 years making these enormous sacrifices and going to live at altitude. It kind of happened naturally for some riders this year who live at altitude. Um, they were doing their quarantine in, in Andorra or um, somewhere else with high elevation and um, not racing as much. So carrying that freshness and doing very specific work leading into the tour. What do you expect to see in this uh, final week of the tour, just from a broad standpoint? I think that the top 10 is going to continue to shuffle a little bit. Um, right now, time gaps are still relatively small in the top 10. Um, and I think we're going to start to see some pretty huge gaps. I think Roglic is just on damage control now. All he's got to do is follow his closest competitors and wait for the final time trial without spending too much. And his team is clearly very strong um, and can help take some of that pressure off of him. Um, but then other riders, if they're still feeling good, like Pogacar, um, are going to have to keep taking more risks. Great. Well, thanks so much, Ben. Ben, you have a busy season up ahead yourself. I know that you are on the list to race the Vuelta España. What does your schedule look like between now and then? I head to Tour de Luxembourg next week, and then I race Flesh Wallonne and Liège. Then I get a week back in Virginia um, for the birth of our first baby. So I'm really looking forward to that. And hopefully he's born before my flight back to Spain. Well, we're all going to be uh, hoping and praying that that is the case, Ben. And I cannot wait to welcome you into the dad's club here in the uh, American. <laughs> hey, before we get to Andrew Hood and James Start, I want to talk to you guys about an exciting new wrinkle we have with our Active Pass membership. Look, we launched Active Pass about two months ago. And since then, we've had a ton of signups. And I've, ha I've gotten a lot of messages from readers, uh, both positive, hey, I love this thing, and also saying, you know, Active Pass is cool, but there's elements of it that don't really apply to me. I'm not super interested in coaching or access to live events. What I really want is the content. I want Velo News Magazine. I want access to the daily exclusive content and all the stuff you're doing around the Tour de France. Well, guess what? We have a new membership that is catered to you if you are one of these people. Um, it's called Velo News Pass. It is $49 for an annual subscription, and it includes all of the exclusive content on VeloNews.com. So that's all of the membership roundtables, hoodies column, um, archive pieces, daily analysis, and exclusive news pieces. Uh, in addition to a year subscription to VeloNews Magazine, that's nine issues. And we're also throwing in the industry deals like pro deals to Jordana, um, Scratch Labs, some other companies in there. And yeah, that's what's included in the new VeloNews Pass. It's $49. You can learn more or sign up at velonews.com 
slash active pass but this is a new a new membership product i'm really excited about it again you know this was born from a lot of readers um, and your feedback so continue to reach out via social media or web letters at velonews.com and if you want more information on active pass or velonews pass check out velonews.com slash active pass okay let's hear from andy hood and james start Let's do a, a sante, James. This is always that is always the happiest sound of any day at the Tour de France, and it's been another long one and another eventful one. It was James. a very long day. These the, these stages here in the Massif Central and Clermont-Ferrand is it's sort of centrally located for the couple of stages we got going on here, but it means like a good healthy drive either which way, uh, and it makes and these are like winding country roads. It makes for some very 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 uh, long days. But, um, you know, great stage today. I was waiting for this stage for a long time. The Puy-Marie is, is a special climb. It's not one of the historic climbs. It's one of the special climbs. And today they went up the hardest side, 15%, little narrow road. Most cars were blocked for days, um, just pure bike racing. And we had a great day of bike racing. Oh, yeah. Fantastic day. Lots of ups and downs, uh, both in a GC. Uh, just, James, tell us about the, uh, the route today. Um, there were some interesting quotes yesterday from uh, uh, Eriti, a rider on Movistar, talking about how the roads are in, in uh, the Massive Central, how the how that asphalt of the tarmac is almost grippy, it's slow, uh, you know, it's it's just it's it's up and down, it's constantly twisting, turning. I mean, this is a great place to do bike touring, not probably a great place to do bike racing. Well, exactly, and the other thing is, there's basically not one piece of flat road. It's just all it's you know, this is just a leg breaker stage. That's all there is to it. Um, all up and down. They started as soon as they hit uh, Clermont, they were going up a hard 10-kilometer climb, probably the second hardest climb of the day. And the tech started right away. And big big riders are in it. Alaphilippe was in it. Uh, the Polka Dutch jersey, uh, Benoit Kostnefar, tried to get in it, but got, got popped. Then, uh, you know, EF launched its counterattack and got, got up to it with a bunch of other... It just, you know, it was just... They were they came out shooting. That's all I can say. Um the one guy that was in that early break was was a guy from here, um, Remy uh, Cavagnat, who was a French National Time Trial champion, one of uh, Alaphilippe's key, key team riders. That guy has a motor, a big, big motor, and he was driving that break for a good part of the day because uh, he knows these roads. He That wet, slow asphalt, he's used to that. And the rhythm of these climbs, he's used to that, even though he's not a climber. Um, and it, it's made for, you know, just big tough riders and it's just obviously a race of attrition i mean it's just it really sucks out the strength and to finish on the primary at 15 percent, i mean i had trouble walking up those last couple kilometers it was just like whoa you know it was that's how steep it was like you know it's like a belgian wall but for three four kilometers you know the 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 mural de Huy at the finish of the flesh wallon is basically a kilometer and this is three or four kilometers. It's a different game. Double. Yeah, in this region, too, a lot of the riders today were from this region. I think uh, Bardet lives up the road. Cavani, you just mentioned. Even Philippe doesn't leave, live too far from here. Big, big cycling hotbed. Uh, bad news for the home team, though, today, James. We had uh, Bardet went down in that crash with Quintana and Molama out of the race. Just kind of, I think, looked like some wheels got crossed. Uh, just kind of in transition zone between some of the climbs. He's out of the race. Bardet. And your man, uh, Guillaume Martin, both got popped out of the top. Uh, they're out of the top 10. They started third and fourth. 
Yeah, and I was—I actually put him down on my uh, on my uh, my my win list for today. I thought this was the day he could maybe sneak away, and he's pretty good on that steep stuff. Um, but um, you know, we're only just going—we're not only edging into the what the—we're th- not in in the third week of the tour yet, and uh, we got a lot of hard racing to go, and maybe you're starting to see some people cracking. Uh, obviously, obviously, you know, we know who's strong, Pogachar, and um, and Roglic. Roglic, and you got to go. I'm mean, what? What? Pogacar is what? Forty-one seconds down now. You forty-four. You're like, what if? What if he didn't caught in those crosswinds? And there's a lot of what ifs. If he hadn't been caught in the crosswind, maybe he wouldn't have been attacking like he was. Exactly. But uh, he's in a perfect position now. Certainly, considering he has no teammates. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> is that it? Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully for the race he won't be, and he's holding his cards close to his hand. And uh, preparing to uh, throw a long one in the last days of the Alps. Well, he'll have to do that. Uh, it was interesting talking to Charlie Wigelius. I mean, they, they got to be very happy over at the EF uh, compound this evening. You got the huge win with Danny Martinez. Really just a wonderfully played finale. But Charlie was talking about going back to your point about just people getting tired and started to crack. Uh, he was saying how, you know, yesterday's stage was the longest stage in the tour. 212 Ks. Today was quite long. Tomorrow's another long one as well, 191 Ks. And he, he was saying yesterday that these long kind of grinder stages, I mean, today was very hard. Tomorrow's kind of another four or five climb up and down across to Lyon. He said these are the stages that you'll see uh, pay the price into the third week when suddenly a rider will just start pedaling squares because the fatigue is going to start sitting in. And plus coming into this tour, a typical tour, there was not the traditional approach to the tour. So I think we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a clear separation between riders who are just strong and, and have the tour in their legs and riders who just are off the, you know, not quite on top of their form. Like Valverde, always a guarantee in almost any grand tour. He's struggling in this tour de France so far. Yeah. Well, I think the old guys, the old guys are probably suffering the most from this uh, restart. Uh, I'd have to, you know, make a real analysis. I, I haven't I'm just kind of talking here, but, uh, I think that the uh, you know traditionally you know older guys are going to have a little need a little more time to get have racing in their legs and stuff like that to come around and he's one of the oldest at forty, um, yeah. So uh, you know hopefully he's going to you know have to start looking for some some break opportunities obviously. But even younger guys, I mean even guys like Ali Philippe who you know was in the yellow jersey one's won the what second stage, um, you know guys that are younger in their prime are struggling. Um, so. You know, it, it's just a, it's, it's it's a grueling race. But we got this is Friday. We've got what nine days of racing left. Take out the Champs Elysees. Got like eight hard days of racing left. And I don't know what the key stage is going to be. I just think I think today was a very key stage. It obviously was. You know, I mean, big reshuffling of the decks on GC. Uh, and um, you know, we'll just have to see where it goes from there. But I think it's just the beginning of some surprises. We'll see if there are some surprises. I mean, the way Jumbo Visma is riding so strong as a block, the way Roglic, I mean, maybe I mean, maybe you can describe how it looked when he went by, but when we were watching it in the press room on TV, he just had that laser focus. You know, you saw Burnout and everybody else just flopping around uh, on, on, on the bikes like they were a bass at the end of a fishing line. Roglic has the pistons. He's just up and down, boom, 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 just smothering the entire, you know, just killing the entire race. Pogachar too. Those guys... Looks so much easier than the, than the wake that they left behind them. Yeah, you know, and uh, it was uh, it was uh, pretty crazy. But um, 
they're, right now they're the strongest. And, uh, you know, we'll see. But we will see at the end of three weeks. I mean, you know, I was, I would say my biggest disappointment was, Ber- was Bernal. Because I thought he was maybe coming into form and was going to be the guy who could really give them grief. But right now, they just seem to be considerably... Um, well, they just, they just really smothered. I mean, Ineos tried to uh, mass at the front today. They put their riders out. They put Carapaz in the front. They had the whole kind of uh, Fortress Frome in this new version. You know, this uh, version they built around Bernal just completely collapsed once uh, Dumoulin and Sepkos went to the front on that final approach up to the Puy-Marie. And then uh, when Pogachar went over the top and then Roglic just went with them, it was just, it was just carnage behind everybody. They were just hanging on for life. And Bar- Bernal actually had a very interesting comment at the finish line. He said, uh, he simply, he, no excuses. He just came in and uh, he came across the line. He just said, they're stronger than me. No excuses. Nothing happened to me. He, in fact, he said he's producing some of his best numbers ever. And he was getting dropped by Roglic and Pogachar. So... You know, that clearly says that uh, those two are at a much higher level than everybody else right now. Go figure. I think, you know, Roglic was the one guy that hadn't even raced before the, you know, the sport went into confinement. Hadn't even raced since last year. Yeah, I mean, just coming out killing it. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. It's a long three weeks. Indeed. Uh, that That's that's the, the only hope, I think, really, that everybody has is that somehow – Yumbo, Visma, and Pogacar are going to crack in that third week. I don't see it happening, personally. You know, we saw a few hiccups uh, last year when Roglic was at the at the Giro last year. Kind of went off the rails there a little bit. But uh, last year at the Vuelta, he was, they were just in complete control of that race. And I don't see anybody really taking it to Yumbo, Visma as a team. There's no one here. I mean, Pogacar doesn't have a team. And uh, no one else really has a team at that level behind Ineos. Uh, and Ineos is on on their back heels right now. You know what's going to happen? It has to be something very bad for Roglic because not only does Bernal need to regain almost a minute, he needs another minute on the other side because he has the time trial in uh, well in the Vosges. You know, uh, you mentioned the Volta. Let, let's not forget the Giro last year, which w- was not so kind to him, and he totally collapsed. Roglic did in the last in the last uh, week, um, certainly because the biggest difference I think, however, was that he didn't have a team. In the Giro. Um, and then, you know, the Dauphine this year, he had that race in his back pocket and he crashed. So so it was uh, at the sharp end of the stick today. It was quite uh, quite impressive with uh, Danny Martinez, uh, you know, playing it smartly. I don't know if you actually probably saw that. I don't know where you were when you saw that it was the two Bora, you know, Shockman and Kamna. And then uh, Martinez was in the middle. He just played it so perfectly. He played off uh, both of those guys. And in the end, it was uh, Martinez countered. I thought that he misjudged the sprint, and he just got it with a huge win for uh, EF. Uh, I think Iran slipped back. I don't know if he lost, but maybe actually gained position a little bit on GC. Lost a little bit of time uh, overall for Iran, but a huge win for Martinez. Uh, what does that mean for a team like uh, Jonathan Vodders? Well, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um their team, uh, I, I really expected great things from this team um, going into the tour. Uh, you know, with Danny winning the, the Dauphiné, uh, Sergio Iguita, what, third in in, um, in uh, Paris-Nice, and, you know, having that, such a great opening season. And then, obviously, Iran, the tested true champion. Um, I, I thought that they were going to have a little bit more of a run at the GC. I'm not quite sure how that's going to happen now. Higuita lost a lot of time. 
Uh, he was great coming up, though. He was like laughing with the fans and, you know, had a good time. This is his first tour. He's very young. Three weeks is a long, a long race. First grand tour for him. Um, so I think that it's more of a learning experience. He's not going to be – maybe he can go for a stage win still. I don't know. Um, you know, Martinez was able to get into that break because he, he was way down in GC already. So, you know, I think there's – I think – but they're, they're, they can be – they can be – going for a lot of attacks and a lot of you know they can blow the race open on a lot of situations in the next week attacking and then you got Iran who's, who's still there um and always he's always there so I mean, basically it's stacking up we got the two slovenians first and second we have four colombians stacked up in gc behind them nairo rigoberto ran bernal and miguel angel lopez superman lopez there's talk of alliances you know, uh, Lopez and Nairo were kind of floating this idea the other day that maybe the Colombians could gang up against the the the, uh, the Slovenians. Uh, you're shaking your head right now. It's like we've never seen alliances. I mean, their alliances happen on the road. They don't happen in a hotel lobby. No, I I don't quite believe that. Um, I don't quite believe that. Um, I just teams teams have their own interests, and I think it's just a little that we're kind of past that. Um, but you know, Rigoberto is still well placed. He's got great teammates with him. Maybe they can pull off a coup in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you have to be pretty creative considering how strong Roglic and, and Pogacar are. But, you know, obviously the podium is, is at is, is, is possible and uh, maybe something more. Do you think today the yellow jersey was decided? Do you think the race is over? Discounting disaster? No. Do you see anybody beating no. Roglic? No. No. I think there's too much racing left to go. Just it's too much, it's too much out there. All right. Well, I will, I will kindly disagree. In fact, I think Roglic today showed it up. If he doesn't have a hiccup, I think he's going to be the uh, first Slovenian to win the Tour de France. I mean, number one danger man is Pogacar, uh, and so far, uh, I think Roglic knows Pogacar style of racing. They raced together last year at the Vuelta, and even even in that first day in the Pyrenees, when uh, Pogacar jumped on the lower flanks. Uh, who was all over him? And the first guy to jump on him was Roglic. Uh, so I, I think uh, Roglic, uh, you know, he's not, maybe not the best speaker in press conferences. We're having a tough time getting anything interesting out of Mr. Uh, Roglic so far in the press conferences. But he's obviously a very smart racer. And he, I think he knows, he knew already last weekend that, that uh, Pogacar was his most dangerous rival. You know, um, cyclists are paid to ride their bikes. They're not, you know, the, the complete sentence is, is sort of, you know, it, it's neither here nor there. If, if you ever seen, there's a great movie about the the pianist Thelonious Monk, uh, Straight No Chaser. The guy, you know, he had trouble coming together with complete sentences, but the sentences he put out on on the piano were, you know, go down in the history books. Same thing with a cyclist. Um, yeah, we're a little more we're a little more literary. You know, not always a lot, a little more. Um, but at the end of the day, you know. Their job is to race a bike. Our, 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 ours is to write stories. Just briefly, uh, before we cut out, uh, tell us more about the uh, what, what's in store for Sunday at the, at the uh, Grand Colombia. That's a climb I've actually never been to the top. That is, oh, and again, we're going up the hardest side, not in the finish, but earlier on. That's another mother of defections like, the, like this one was today. Um, yeah, I think that one could produce uh, quite a few surprises. Quite a few. I mean... We'll see. We'll see if Pogacar's got something in him. If he, he may have too much respect for Roglic to try to drop him. 
but it's a it's a great climb. It's a beautiful climb over the valley. Um, it's spectacular. It's going to be a great day of racing. Yeah, Pogacar today said at the finish line, goes, oh, yeah, uh, Relich and I were quite good friends, but we're, we were not friends in the last two kilometers today. So so he's going to uh, he's gonna keep racing. He's, he's young. He's hungry, 22, un- unbridled. He's, just, he's not going to throw in the towel right now. So anyway, the waiter is giving us the dirty look. We're going to wrap this up. It's late night here in France. We, we want to have dinner after a long day. So thanks for listening. We'll check back in later with them. Yeah. It's been great. And just so you know, it's like 10, 15. So, you know, we're working honestly here. <laughs> it's a long day. Thanks, All right, you take care.